Welcome to Biocompatibility, the first ever podcast focused on the biocompatibility of medical devices. NAMSA is happy to bring Biocompatibility to you, where each episode features leading industry experts and their discussions on biocompatibility challenges. Be sure to visit www.namsa.com for more information and to access all podcasts and transcripts. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Biocom Chatability. We're still able to say it, so that's a good sign. So mm-hmm. we, we, we've, I think we're moving past that. So I think I've gotten go. better. I've gotten better. Hey, my name is Sherry Bibbins. And this is Don Pohl. We're glad to have you back for uh, episode two. And we're glad that at least we've been given the opportunity to record episode two. I think uh, that means we maybe did something right. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think there's, you know, been some, some that have uh, indicated to keep on going. So we'll, we'll keep on going and move on. <laughs> right. Right. We, we'd love to say we're number six on Apple podcasts and we're getting all five-star reviews, but we can't necessarily say that yet. So um, maybe someday, but I don't know that we'll ever get to number six, maybe number 600. Uh, let's not get right crazy into the world of <laughs> metrics and uh, that sort of thing quite yet. I, I, I don't think we're there. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Someday. Someday. Anyway, so we are uh, going to talk about CSI cracking the case. That's our our title for episode two. And when we refer to CSI, we actually learned this term. I had never in all my years at NAMSA hadn't called cytosensitization and irritation CSI until we were in kind of an experiential setting with some FDA reviewers and they kept referring to CSI, CSI, CSI. And I was like, do they mean cytosensitization and irritation? And sure enough, they did. So that's so much easier. It is. It is. And, and in the world of biocompatibility, we love our acronyms. So it's, it's always good to have just one more. Why not? One more. So, one yeah. more that's fun and also has yeah. TV shows. And, yeah, exactly. So, exactly. So anyway, we're, we're cracking the case on CSI today. And uh, going to talk a little bit about cytosensitization and irritation. And, and these studies, you know, as you know, or you may not know, nearly every medical device that uh, is out there that touches the body in one way or another needs this type of evaluation. So we're talking about cytotoxicity, sensitization, skin, skin sensitization. Ooh, that was, that's easy for me to say. And uh, intracutaneous or irritation of the skin or different types of irritation studies. Yeah. So the, you know, the big three, and, and certainly it doesn't mean that, you know, all the companies out there for all medical devices test against these three endpoints, but they, as you said, Sherry, as long as the device contacts the human body or makes contact with the patient, more historically speaking, then, then certainly they have to be evaluated. The, the endpoints have to be evaluated. So it, it's, Hard to get a device on the market, uh, especially especially more invasive devices for sure, without this this type of testing. Right. So you know, by numbers, they they certainly got to be the top three for any companies that do this type of testing. They got to be the top three in terms of whether it be volume. testing or yeah, yeah certainly volume. I think. Right. So I was just thinking. So when we when we talk about you know, the evaluation process, obviously. So we're referring to the kind of the overall umbrella document of ISO 10993 part one, which is, you know, gives us the guidance on the biological evaluation of medical devices. 
And then these three are endpoints that are you know, pointed out in that table that's found in that and the annex of part one, but they each have their own 10993 standards. So it's interesting because lots of folks just look at part one and want to use it, you know, as a checklist, right? But if you're doing sensitization or even irritation for that matter, there could be multiple different ways that it can be evaluated. And those are found in their separate parts of the ISO 10993 documents. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, aside from part one, giving us the overall general guidance, you know, we're talking for CIDO, ISO 10993 part five, and then part 10 for, as it stands today, both sensitization and irritation both get covered in, in part 10. So again, in, and even inside those standards, you know, whether it be part five or part 10, for all these endpoints, there are, you know, quite a few different methods for how one goes about evaluating them uh, or testing for them. Once you get down to the point that you need a test, it's, it's a lot of testing that can be considered um, in terms of different methodologies. But which one you need, if you need a test, you know, just depends on you know, what's in part one in terms of how you go about your evaluation. But, you know, for any of these, you also have to think about where you're, you're submitting to keep that in, in, in mind as well, certainly, because, you know, if you're looking at FDA's biocompatibility co- guidance in combination with ISO 10993 part one, and you're, you know, worried about a 510K submission or, or some other type of submission, IDE, PMA, um, certainly because you're dealing with the FDA, you might, you might view it a little bit differently based on their guidance. Yeah. So that's interesting. So when you talk about 510K submissions, so I, I did a little bit of you know, research on the FDA website. And so last year there were over 3,510K submissions. And some of these things are large instruments or, or MRI machines or x-ray machines or software. So obviously not all those things require a biological evaluation such as, such as this. But I don't know, maybe if you think about 70% of those need, you know, cytosensitization and irritation. So we alluded to the fact that any laboratory that probably does this testing, these are their, if they do in vivo and in vitro testing, that is, these are their top three, top three tests in volume would be our suspicion. They're probably, I don't even, actually, I'm looking at NAMSA data. I'm, I'm not sure they are in that order in, in for us, but, but certainly volume wise, cytotoxicity is clearly thousands of those that we perform every year. Yeah. And across the industry, especially just Speaking about medical devices, yeah, I mean, across the industry, it's got to be in the tens of thousands of those studies that get done. Again, not not necessarily at NAMSA, but just all the laboratories and across the globe, it's got to rank number one, I would tend to think, because, you know, it's it's viewed as a screening study. It's supposed to be really sensitive and, and really useful for making predictions about overall safety. And, and so it garners a lot of attention. and. You know, in terms of, you know, what I always refer to as the tabular assessment of medical devices when it comes to biological endpoints, it's the first column. So the tabular uh, assessment. But is it still the first column? Is it now characterization the first column, Don? When it comes to biological endpoints. Okay. Okay. Technically, you're right. Okay. (laughs) Look at me trying to correct you. I don't know what I think I'm doing. So I did, I uh, did my little, I did some Googling, right? So I was like, what do we, you know, what do we define cytotoxicity as? So I found an interesting definition that I thought had gave an interesting example. So it says it's the quality of being toxic to cells, which I guess 
they're using toxicity and toxic to explain each other. But anyway, examples of toxic agents are an immune cell or some types of venom from a puff or brown recluse spider. So uh, that's pretty extreme cytotoxicity, I would guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, basically, do you kill cells? And if you don't kill cells, cells? do you have some other effect or have some impact? It, It might not be, you know, death per se. But yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned toxicity because in the middle of cytotoxicity or at the end of cytotoxicity is toxicity. And and I have actually have regulators get, I won't say hung up, but caught with that concept in mind because they'll make the comment, well, you've shown through your cytotoxicity tests that there is some level of toxicity, but you have not done any toxicity testing of the device. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So how did you further, you know, evaluate the toxicity of your, of your product, which again, we're, you know, we're focused in the area of biocompatibility evaluations for medical devices is kind of the concept of, of, of this podcast. But, you know, just looking back at outside of medical devices, if you go to OECD, and I'm looking at a document that's a guidance document for using cytotoxicity tests to estimate the starting doses for acute oral systemic toxicity tests. Again, this is for chemicals, wow. pharmaceuticals, but it kind of plays into the point that you mentioned, Sherry, is, is can you use cytotoxicity? And certainly the, the assumption is you can to essentially estimate what your starting doses may be in toxicity tests. And, and, and quickly, again, we've left the world of the simple medical device and jumped over into OECD documents because I would tend to think it's, it would be very, very rare for medical, most medical device companies, most medical device products to actually start with cytotoxicity to figure out what the dose is going to be because it's just not really done that often, if ever, to say, hey, for my medical device, I want to know where my top dose is going to be or my beginning dose. Everybody just assumes, you know, we're going to do this, pass it, move on into other types of tests after my cytotoxicity test, and it's a foregone conclusion. But it doesn't always work out that way. Right. So, Don, what are some things that we find in medical devices that are always like we know, you know, when you get to the situation of performing cytotoxicity that you're almost always going to have a challenge with? I I, I mean, really, I think the first thing in my mind that is always just the composition of the device and and just having in your composition a component that's known to be cytotoxic in the studies that we do for medical devices. And there are enough of those materials out there. Doesn't mean that they're bad materials and can't be used. It just means they're going to give you problems. So, I mean, the common examples that have been examples forever are things like copper, latex, some polyamides, uh, you know, just the, 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 those are the things that come to mind. But then the one that's always out there is antimicrobial products, um, right. which are like added to everything practically, it seems. And, and certainly if you have something that's antimicrobial, it's, it, it's going to be cytotoxic in these assays. So um, it's just a matter of determining how easily you can make it go away for whatever purpose you're going to use this study at that point, because you know it's going to have an effect. You want it to have an effect because of, of that ingredient and, and other right. active ingredients as well. I mean, certainly can have cytotoxic uh, effects 
if they're added into a medical device for sure. It just depends on how much is there and, and how much elutes out during the actual study. And so then you, you typically get into the world of, you know, at least doing dilutions or dilution series uh, for the product to see how easily one can dilute out the cytotoxic effect that you just observed. And the, the question that's always going to be hanging around, though, is, is what does it mean? What does it mean in the overall safety evaluation of our, my device if, you know, I was able to kill cells in an ISO MEM elution cytotoxicity test in an undiluted test article extract? And there it certainly goes into maybe sensitization and irritation. You know, do I have any other effects that indicate that the cytotoxicity test is telling me something that's or, or basically cautioning me to something that could have an in vivo effect. Um, but notice in cracking the case with CSI, cytosensitization, irritation, the top three, big three, whatever we want to call them, you know, toxicity still isn't there aside from cytotoxicity. So if you're trying to figure out if it's toxic, you have to go again, another column over or two and, and get to systemic endpoints, things like at a minimum acute systemic toxicity. But, um, but that's not part of CSI. So, you know, right. <laughs> so, so I had a colleague, we both had a colleague years ago that could talk about Cyto for hours. And it seems like you might, you might be really have a love affair with Cytos too. So <laughs> I have a love, love affair, hate relationship with Cyto. Quite <laughs> okay. Honestly. You have a love hate relationship. So, <laughs> yes. but, but, you know, it's really interesting for a simple, you know, screening assay. And I know a lot of manufacturers do this test themselves. You know, you don't necessarily always go to a laboratory for this. People can can start running these in, in internal, a lot of like QC type laboratories, I think, for screening materials. Yeah. But it's really, you know, it's kind of fascinating on what it can do and how much folks look to CYTOS for, for answers. But so let's go on to our friend sensitization, an, an in vivo model that is, you know, kind of a long, long test that especially for these short-term, other short-term tests it's paired with, like a cyto or an irritation, um, sensitization can certainly be a delay for um, submission if, if one waits too long to start this. Um, so I think it's important to, to talk about some of the things that we find with, with sensitization and, and maybe define that a little bit. So we're not looking for every type of sensitizer, right? So Correct. this doesn't yeah. screen like anaphylactic shock. Correct. We're talking type four hypersensitivity or delayed uh, sensitization, and and you I've know, best it, heard that explained like like poison ivy, right? Like the first time, yeah, you might yeah. not be sensitized, but multiple exposures—that's the type four sensitizer, right? Yeah, uh, a developed immune response to exposure to a chemical. So, and and that's the thing that makes it something that takes longer, especially in some of the models that get used for um, sensitization, is the fact that you have to develop the response in in the test system. So okay. it's it, it's not a single exposure, you know, like uh, type one, this is a multiple exposure. And so you have to give the immune system time to say, hey, I recognize this now and that I've been exposed to it and now I'm going to react in this way. So it's not a single exposure type study like, like cytotox or irritation, but a multiple exposure study. And um there's different types, uh, as right. you talked about, but this one, as covered in, in Part 10, covers uh, hypersensitivity. There are different methods in Part 10 
to evaluate it, both primarily focused now and vivo wise, but there are there's mention of an in vitro method for sensitization as well. Um, but not completely accepted for the medical device industry quite yet. Right. So, so we're well, I think that's an interesting interesting point is that, you know, and we'll get into this more when we talk about irritation, but as far as sensitization, you know, the in vivo methods are very, you know, old and and well established and and as far as we're seeing in our little crystal ball, there's not some equivalent in vitro methods to replace for example, you know, the maximization, the the longer exposure multiple dose type studies. Yeah. Yeah, and and then there are, you know, kind of the classic maximization method, you know, which which takes, you know, roughly a month to get done in life. There are shorter studies that are still, you know, evaluating type four sensitization and, and you know, they they can be done in, in a week's time. But then you get into right. the world of, you know, is every regulatory body across the globe going to accept that method? And kind of right now, I think the the most widely accepted is the the maximization method of sensitization testing. If, if you don't want to deal with justifying uh, why you selected a different type of method that might not be as as recognized globally as as other methods. And so the difference between like the maximization and like a closed patch is an extract versus a direct contact. Is that and and yeah. extracts? You know, chemical extracts are what we're looking for, right? Because that's what normally causes a biological reaction. Yeah, yeah, and and the most common method I would say for the maximization method is is an extract based study for sure that that's how it gets performed and and on the closed patch side I mean you can technically do closed patch sensitization testing with extracts it can be done described in in standards but it is fairly rare at least in my experience it's fairly rare that it gets performed that way usually when you hear the word extract and you think of sensitization it's a maximization model closed patch usually you're actually a patching a part of a product directly. So it is, uh, you know, a direct contact type sensitization study. It's kind of similar to, you know, the, the human sensitization tests that you see, which are actually in part 10 as well, way back in the informative annexes where you actually, uh, you know, expose a person to, to something to see if you develop an allergic reaction to it. Um, and, so yeah, the, the the close patch is more along that lines, and then the the other methods still in vivo based. It's just a matter of uh, a different model um, for yeah. evaluating type four, and the the some of the other models become quantitative too, um, where you actually measure an endpoint to uh, to tell you whether or not the test system has become sensitized, which is definitely a nice added uh, benefit as compared to the uh, more Dray scoring schemes that you see in in the other models. Excellent. Okay. And I've had people ask me this, like, how often do people ever actually find sensitizers in medical devices? And, you know, it's a long study. It's kind of a pricey study. You know, there's lots of questions as to, you know, we still do this, but do we ever really find sensitizers? And I know that, you know, we could probably talk about the hypothetical forever and that we're not going to answer that completely yeah. today, but 
it's fairly rare, right? Yeah, yeah. It's fair. I would say fairly rare that you find a sensitizer, and it, which kind of definitely speaks to the world of well-characterized materials, not novel materials that go into most medical devices. Not all, but most. Right. Um, it's kind of the world we live in. Substantial equivalence back to something that already exists. So, so yeah, in, in terms of, you know, again, where we started today, cytotoxicity, but not uncommon to see cytotoxicity failures. In some cases, pretty much predict cytotoxicity failures to some degree. But sensitization, yeah, that's going to be uh, certainly a, a rare case. But go to the, the, the eye and CSI irritation, you know, yeah. there, yeah, you probably see that one show up a little bit more frequently for sure than, well, definitely more frequently than, than sensitization, but still not as frequently as, as, as cytotoxicity. So, so let's talk about irritation. So we're, I mean, the, the definition is basically, you know, it's the potential to cause irritation. And so what, um, what are the different types of, of um, models or analysis that are used for irritation? I know intracutaneous is the most common, again, easy for me to say. Then you have similar like direct contact type methods to almost like mirrors what sensitization does. That is that an accurate? Yeah. In terms of how you can actually test a, mm-hmm. a, a product. Yeah, you can have direct contact models. You can have extract models. The intracutaneous is typically an extract model. It doesn't, I mean, you could actually dose a, a liquid device direct if one wanted to in an intracutaneous model. But yeah, there's direct contact models as well. And then there's just a lot of different models <laughs> for irritation. Sure. Um, ISO 10.993 part 10 is kind of loaded up with uh, different types of irritation. And, and again, we're, we're primarily looking for an acute irritant response, which I guess by that definition, I could be myself defined as an irritant to some people. <laughs> I don't know, but maybe I'm more Touché. chronic irritation. I, I, I don't well, know. Can't we all? Can't we all? <laughs> maybe people who are but, listening to us now are 20 minutes in and like, all right, uh, this yeah, is acute this irritation. Is, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Goes on much longer, it'll be uh, chronic irritation <laughs> or at least subacute irritation. Possibly, um, possibly, possibly. But that's a topic for another day because then <laughs> right. we're into systemic toxic. Right, but, sure. But no, I, I would say that um, you know it's point. It's important to point out that I mean we're talking primarily about acute irritation when we're talking about part ten because then you can start to see and kind of segue into another standard in ISO ten nine three, which is part six which is local effects after implantation, which in essence is, is a local irritations test, but specifically evaluating after you implant something primarily or, or put something in longer duration of contact with um, uh, a tissue if there's a prolonged or a, uh, an irritant re- observed in the tissue that it's been exposed to. So you know, intracutaneous is, uh, or irritation, uh, as it's talking, as it's referred to in this category, is talking about this acute irritant effect that we're investigating. And again, it may have some correlations to other things. There might be a correlation to cytotoxicity. Cytotoxicity sure. might be able to say, uh, you know, you might have an irritant issue. Probably not going to be that specific versus cytotox just telling you you might have a potential for an irritation and some of the other effects that you have to evaluate. But yeah, I've, I've seen cytotoxicity fail. And then I've seen along with it, an irritation study 
give either fail or give her a, a a significant response that has to be explained. But it doesn't always work out that way. And certainly, I've seen irritation studies pass, and and ir- I mean, uh, cytotoxicity studies pass, and irritation studies fail. And I've seen it the direct opposite as well. So it doesn't always work out that one reflects the other. I mean, just recently, I've I've seen cytotoxicity pass and acute systemic fail. And then, in, like I say, in another case, it was cytotoxicity passed, but the intracutaneous failed. So it's at that point become certainly an investigation into, um, I would say, root cause evaluation of what's going on. Do you know what's happening? Do you know why you got the results that you got? And if you have uh, some some theory as to what is going on, you know, trying to collect data either from literature or other endpoint tests that you may have that would help explain your your theory or support your theory. So it, it's fairly, again, common for cytotox and irritation to potentially have some issues. It's rare that you see a like a root cause investigation on sensitization. Not that it can't happen. It's just, as we've been talking about, kind of rare. Right. So um, one thing we kind of skimmed over is uh, kind of the discussion of the use of polar and nonpolar extracts. So we alluded to a lot of these are extract studies and we're looking at, you know, the chemicals that come out of whatever the materials are, are often the, obviously the cause of the issues. So you have to extract that out in a way to analyze these. We're not putting a hip onto a cell, (laughs) a, a bed of of side of cells to try to to test cytotoxicity necessarily. So maybe in the last few minutes here, Don, let's talk about um, polar and nonpolar a little bit, and maybe what some of the the choices could be in in these different evaluations. Yeah, and and as soon as we start talking about polar and nonpolar, you know, we've been talking a lot about standards and and, and such that that we all follow for medical device evaluation. So ISO ten nine nine three part twelve is going to be the kind of the, the the horizontal standard or it is the horizontal standard that addresses that extraction process and and in there it talks about polar and nonpolar and selecting vehicles to mimic different types of of tissues and such that are inside the the human body or in the human body and as soon as you touch the human body you know you're going to have an exposure which is in essence, going to be both polar and nonpolar body fats, but as well as other types of uh, of chemicals or potential chemicals. So things that are soluble in water, things that are soluble and in organics, essentially. So for cytotox, it just so happens that the extraction typically is done in serum supplemented cell culture media, which has been shown to have both polar and nonpolar characteristics to it. So you get you know, one vehicle to cover both there. But when you get into intracutaneous slash irritation as an endpoint, if you're doing extractions and you're not doing one of those direct contact type methods, then polar and nonpolar is usually something like saline in a vegetable oil. Same thing on the sensitization side. And, and again, the vehicles can change across the methods, but typically we're looking at saline and, and a vegetable oil, saline, polyethylene glycol, things like that when it gets to sensitization as well. And and regardless of which endpoint, whether it be cytosensitization or irritation, obviously the vehicle itself has to be compatible, if you will, 
with the test article that's being evaluated. So the, the point isn't to essentially dissolve the device. The point is to extract out of the device what the body may pull out of that device so that what comes out can then be evaluated in the study that we're performing. Excellent. You know, just in thinking about that, maybe it's maybe we need to do a, a quick session, uh, follow-up session on part 12. You know, it'd be interesting to discuss that and, and the temperatures and uh, those types of situations. So maybe we do a episode 2B where we discuss part 12 and um, and go further into that. Because I think it's, a, it's a, a topic that lots of folks have challenges with, especially when submitting work to their laboratories. How do I know what test article to use? How do I know what temperature to use? And so um, we can maybe give some guidance there in a follow-up episode. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now you use the word interesting and, and, and again, you know. <laughs> It's all relevant. Or relative, all relative, I mean. It's all relevant. I, 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 yeah, yeah. I guess if you're listening to this, you may be interested. It so. should be relevant, right? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. It's relevant exactly. to us. So great, Don. I th- I mean, I think we 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 did obviously some high-level talk here on CSI. Um, you know, in general, the importance of these three is, you know, it's it's they have pretty high importance across the industry and the tests are performed repeatedly on schedule at various laboratories. They're running these, these tests every day. So I think it's, uh, you know, it's a big part of the business of evaluating medical devices for biological safety. So super important. And uh, we're happy to discuss these in further if anybody has any feedback and, and wants us to go deeper on any of these topics. But I think for today, this is, um, this is going to be a wrap. Don, how are you? All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could go on for, you know, quite some time, but that's not the point. So not the point, <laughs> not the point of a podcast, right? So anyway, thank you all for um, joining us for this podcast. We're happy that you're here for Biocom Chatability. As always, please look us up uh, in your podcast stores. Uh, you can go to namsa.com slash resources slash podcasts to find links to subscribe and download all that good stuff. To access additional information about cytosensitization and irritation on the NAMSA website, please go to www.namsa.com slash CSI podcast. That's www2, the number two, dot namsa.com slash CSI podcast. And we will catch you here on our next episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy biocompatibility, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast store. For free resources and material, remember to visit www.namsa.com slash resources slash podcast.